episode two, we talked with John McDonough about improving our healthcare system and health. And in this episode, we will finish our conversation with John by focusing in on the political feasibility of Medicare for All. Welcome to Understanding Medicare for All. I'm your host, Stacey He, And I'm your other host, Jake Petrini. Hey, Stacey, do you know what Medicare for All is? No, do you? No. We, we are confused, perplexed, interested, curious, and uncertain about Medicare for All. If you haven't listened to episode two, we encourage you to do so, as episode three is a continuation of our conversation with Professor John McDonough. If you need a quick recap of episode two or one, be sure to check out our website. The URL is located in our podcast description. Welcome back, everyone. So, John, does Medicare for All make sense for the United States? And what would need to happen for it to be passed by Congress and implemented? So, would it be helpful? Yes. Can it happen feasibly? I'm afraid no. And that's probably where I need to kind of stop and explain. Because I saw this up close and personal when I worked in the U.S. Senate. And it's just important to understand the history and, and the history of, of health reform and attempts to get at universal coverage. We had two, if you go back to 1950, President Harry Truman, and then look at the 70 years since then. What we can observe is that there were two efforts to try to achieve broad-based, system-wide, deep, universal coverage and single-payer system reform. And that was Harry Truman in 1950 and Bill Clinton in 1994. Those were the two major efforts at comprehensive reform. There's a third one, another one actually, when Richard Nixon was president in 1974. He also tried to do a big national health reform piece, partly because he was looking to distract people's attention from the Watergate scandal and never got, never, never got that far in Congress. But those are three efforts and all of them failed. And then we have some large and significant incremental efforts, incremental in the sense not trying to reform the whole system. We have Lyndon Johnson in 1965 creating Medicare and Medicaid, two of the fundamental pillars of the U.S. healthcare system. We had the Affordable Care Act in 2010. We also had some smaller things like creation of the Children's Health Insurance Program in 1997 under Bill Clinton. So the lesson in history, and sorry to say it, is that comprehensive reforms have a history of failing and smartly done aggressive with good leadership from the White House and a supportive Congress. Incremental reforms, even big incremental reforms like Medicare and Medicaid, can actually happen. So that's an important lesson is that the American public is skittish of big, overwhelming, comprehensive, even though there's a lot of Americans who passionately want it more than anything else in the country. When you get into Medicare for all single payer and you get into the financing of it, that's the big swamp. Political clout diminishes. Lyndon Johnson used to say, Every day I'm in here, I have less clout than the day before. And that's just the rule and the nature of being in that position and what it's faced. So, so it's really hard. And what's really difficult is the United States Senate. Because in the United States Senate, there's only 100 of them in there. 
but to get anything important, significant done that changes law requires 60 votes. And if you don't have 60 votes, then it's not going to happen. Republicans love to beat up Democrats when they go for the big comprehensive reform. And Lyndon Johnson, when he passed Medicare, he had 68 Democrats in the U.S. Senate. Barack Obama, when he passed the ACA, had 60. And he had to get 60 out of 60. And it was not easy. And I was there and I saw how hard it was. When Bill Clinton lost in 1994, he had 54 Democrats in the Senate. And he had a catastrophic loss. Harry Truman, I think, had about 53 Democrats. So it matters. And so the other piece in this era, in this era since Reagan in 1981, is that Americans, by their votes, prefer divided government. For 30 of the last 40 years, we've had divided government, divided trifecta. Six years, Republicans have had all three branches. Democrats had those all three branches for only four years. And it was Bill Clinton's first term, 93, 94, and Barack Obama's first term, 09 and 10. They rolled the dice big time, both of them, for comprehensive health reform or for big time incremental reform under Obama. And Clinton got nothing. And then in the next election, lost the House and the Senate. And Obama won, but he still lost the House in the next election. And he was playing defense for the rest of his term as president. Let's say, so, so the only way Medicare for all can happen in 2021 is if Democrats control the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. But the other thing is this. Everybody I know who cares for Medicare for all also cares deeply about the next Congress addressing climate change, addressing voting rights, addressing income inequality, addressing infrastructure, education, on and on and on and on. And what I observed, because I was a state rep in the early 90s in Clinton, and I, I was watching it like a hawk very closely, and I was in the Senate during Obama, when big time health reform is on, it tends to suck all the oxygen out of the room. And so there's no political oxygen left to spend a lot of time on other issues. And I'll mention just one example. So in 2008, when Obama was running, he promised, I heard him, he promised the immigration community in the United States that if he was elected president, they would see comprehensive immigration reform in his first two years in office. And so in January 2009, he was taken over the White House and they showed up and they said, okay, let's go to town, let's go to work and stuff. And they would say, no, no, wait a minute, folks, wait, hold on, we're gonna get to you, but we gotta do healthcare first. But don't worry, we're gonna get to healthcare by Labor Day and then we'll go right to you. Labor Day 2009, Labor Day came, Labor Day turned into Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Martin Luther King Day, Valentine's Day, Past St. Patrick's Day, I got signed into law on March 23rd, 2010, during the election year. By that time, the Republican resistance called the Tea Party was flying high, and Democratic members of Congress looking at re-election were hiding under their desks in fear, and nothing got done 
on immigration reform, comprehensive reform, and nothing's gotten done since then. So it seems to me that there are a lot of legitimate, serious problems with the Affordable Care Act, and most of them are entirely fixable without having to burn down the House. And there's actually a way to get it done using the budgetary process known as budget reconciliation. It only applies to budget bills, but you can use it in the House and the Senate. And when you have a budget reconciliation bill on the floor, it can't be filibustered in the Senate. So it only requires 51 votes to get it done. And you can find that to deal with rising premiums, unaffordable cost sharing, prescription drug prices, all of the big pain points that Americans are experiencing that can be addressed by a new Congress without burning down the House and saving political capital for some of those other things that are so incredibly urgently needed and important. Can you talk a little bit more about the budget reconciliation yeah. and how that would work exactly? Yeah, so this was created in the 1970s by the late West Virginia Senator Robert Byrd, who was a big Senate parliamentary expert. And he wrote, he wrote several volumes about the history of the United States Senate. I mean, this was a man of letters and a really distinguished, one of the more distinguished senators in the last century. And he became very frustrated with the congressional budget process and how it would just, this was in the 1970s, just get bollocked up with all these side issues. People wanted to throw, you know, death penalty into a budget bill or abortion or whatever, just, just would block it. And so you couldn't get any budget stuff done. So they came up with special rules for the budget process. And the special rules are referred to as budget reconciliation. And so you can, members of Congress can advance a budget reconciliation bill through the House and then to the Senate. And it can go through with 51 votes. And it only has 20 hours of debate. No more than that. So you can't block it for any period of time. And the trick is that the pieces that are in the budget reconciliation bill must be, must, no margin for error, strictly budget related. So the, in, in the, so the, the tax cuts that the Trump administration did at the end of 2017 were done through a budget reconciliation vehicle. So it was basically just, and so you can, you can make the budget fatter, you can cut the budget. Both are fine, either direction, but it has, so you can play with corporate tax rates. You can play with individual tax rates and you're changing the law, but you're changing just the budgetary numbers in it. So the best example in healthcare is in that law, that corporate tax cut law, they added a little provision that was reported and believed by the public to have repealed the part of Obamacare, the part of the ACA called the individual mandate that required people who could afford to do it to buy health insurance. The truth is that in the budget reconciliation bill, they did not repeal the individual mandate. What they did was they took the tax penalty for not having health insurance and they reduced the penalty to zero. So you can do that in a budget reconciliation bill, but you couldn't repeal the mandate, which is why the mandate is still on the books, even though 
it's zero, and so there's no penalty for not complying with the mandate. So that's the way that it works. So if you want to take the ACA structure and make the premiums more affordable, you can do that in a reconciliation bill. If you want to add financial support to lower the cost of deductibles and coinsurance and co-pays and that sort of thing, you can do it. So you can do those kinds of things that get at what are the immediate, they don't get at the underlying system errors. It's not the big reform of Medicare for All, which I would greatly prefer. However, it does get at the pain that so many Americans are feeling right now for people who are shut out of the system or hurting in some special way because there were parts of the law that were just not realistically set up enough to be affordable enough for what people are actually facing. So that's a pathway forward that could be done with 51 votes without burning down the house. And I hate to say that because I love to defend Medicare for all, but I can't, honestly, when it comes to looking at the real feasibility and the real consequences of going there and losing. So looking back then on Clinton and Obama, and especially your work with the ACA, mm -hmm. who are players outside of individuals and Senate and the House that play major roles in determining what pieces of legislation are passed and which aren't. So you have, so you have uh, in no particular order except for the big ones, you have the pharmaceutical industry. Terribly influential, lots and lots of money, and fiercely effective in terms of getting their way. We have the hospital industry, the American Hospital Association, but then there's tribes and tribes and tribes of smaller groups, children's hospitals, psychiatric hospitals, all with their own lobbies and so forth. We have the physician community led by the American Medical Association, but you have a gargantuan number of smaller societies of orthopods, you know, skin, there's, there, there's, there's a, uh, there's, I get skin cancer because I, I got the sunburn a lot when I was a kid and so I have to get it taken care of and I get this little procedure called Mohs surgery, M-O-H-S. Probably some of the listeners have heard of this, if you're my age, whatever. Um, there's a whole specialty society of people who just do Mohs surgery. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And, and, and they all have lobbyists, and they all have interests, and they all have their policy agenda aimed at these things. There's the insurance industry, the America's Health Insurance Plans, AHIP, and the Blue Cross Association as the two big ones. There's the medical device industry, led by a group called AdvaMed. There are states, state governments, that always demand a piece of the action. There's the public health community that doesn't have a big enough building. There's the labor movement, the AFL-CIO, the union that tends to be the most aggressive on health care is the Service Employees International Union, SEIU. And then you have the voices of the public. You have consumer voices. American Cancer Society, American Heart Association, Families USA, all of these, all of these voices come together. And, and then you have, you have conservative voices as well. There's always stuff going on. There's always too many things happening to pay attention to everything. And it's so important and it's so urgent on so many levels that it's just, it's endlessly interesting. And, and plus then you throw gasoline onto that fire.
with the Citizens United Supreme Court decision, which basically enshrines corporations to get directly, publicly or privately involved in political campaigns and other kinds of related interventions that just become so toxic in terms of trying to get the voice of the public heard and advanced. One of the things going on right now in the American healthcare system is a growing penetration by what's called private equity into the system. So it's companies and corporations that they don't issue stock anymore. Some of them bought back all their stock and they're just owned by private investors. A lot of times you don't even know who they are. So we're trying to address this problem right now in America called surprise billing, where you go to an emergency room, you get put under anesthesia for something, and nobody tells you, but the anesthesiologist is not an employee or not part of your network. No one asked you if you're okay with this. And then two weeks later, when you go home, you get a bill for $25,000, and this is our, or even more, and this is happening all over the country, and they'll sit collection agencies on you, they'll garnish your wages, they'll do all kinds of despicable things. And so there's an effort, because this has become a big issue, to try to clamp down on surprise billing. And turns out there were, there were all these ads that were going on in social media and elsewhere, attacking by this group with this, you know, innocuous name, you know, Committee for Fairness or something. Mm -hmm. and, and it turns out that the money behind this mass advertising effort against the surprise billing efforts to try to regulate it and control it were from physician organizations, physician organizations that supply doctors to hospitals that have shortages of medical personnel. And these places are increasingly owned by private equity firms. And they were the ones putting the money to finance this campaign and no one knew it until they got outed and stuff. But they're there and stuff. And that's just, you know, that's just God bless America. That's how we do it these days in America. But, you know, other, I, I, taught, I have friends now since I came to Harvard who work in healthcare in other countries. And I explain to them some of the stuff that goes on. And I got this one friend, Karl Lauterbach, who's a member of the German Bundestag, the German parliament. And he just kind of, sometimes I just tell him some of the stories and he just falls off his chair. He says, you know, that just, that just that's inconceivable. How can you let that happen? How can that be? And that's what goes on. <laughs> so, John, it sounds like you think Medicare for All is a good policy, but is politically infeasible and could cause more harm than good. So... Other than political feasibility, what are some other major arguments that are out there against single payer or against Medicare for all in the U.S.? Why do people oppose it? Well, so, so there's a great part of economics that I love that's only about you know, a quarter of a century old in a robust form called behavioral economics. Mm -hmm. And what it really is, it's great. It's merging economics and psychology to not just assume that everybody in the marketplace is a rational actor and understand that people's behavioral patterns can be irrational and can be manipulated by advertising and Facebook and other kinds of things that we didn't even know about when, when this started. And one of the tenets and the core rules of behavioral economics that is foundational is that people, for the most part, are risk averse. And you can see this play out. So in 
1993-94 Clinton when they were trying to do it and they said, oh, we're going to give you this great new thing. It's really shiny. It's going to be beautiful. And people said, but wait a minute, we're going to. And then the Republicans and other people, the industry said, no, but they're going to take away things that you have that you like. And it just collapsed of its own weight. So nine, 2009 and 10, Obama, we, I was one of the staffers, we really tried to learn deeply and intimately from the Clinton failure and not to repeat those efforts. And so we really caged it as we said, basically, you know, and, and Obama said it and he got really hit for it. He said, you know, if you like what you have, you can keep it. We're just going to try to fix the system for people for whom it's not working. And that was largely correct, but he got hammered for the relatively small number of people for whom it was not correct. And, and in that case, you know, Obama and the Democrats were saying, here's this new shiny odd, we're going to give you all of these great things. And Republicans were saying, look at all the things they're going to take away. They're going to give you death panels. All these bad things are going to happen. And we barely got it through. We got 60 out of the 60 votes now. We got it through by the skin of our teeth. In 2017, Donald Trump comes in and he says, I'm going to repeal Obamacare, which had been on the ground implemented. People were seeing the real world benefits of it for years by that point. And I'm going to give you this nice shiny object, but they could never even explain what it was. They just said, we're going to take it all away from you and we're going to give you something else and trust us, don't worry. And Americans said, hell no, no way. And so the behavioral economics cycle kind of flipped against the Republicans in 2017. Now in 2021, if we go forward into Medicare for all and Democrats come forward and say, hey, we got this bright new shiny object for you, you're all gonna love it. And you're gonna see the cycle repeat back to what it was. And so that's a, that's a really important fundamental dynamic to understand is that healthcare is so important to people, so intimate. And most Americans just find our healthcare system incomprehensible. And all they want is to get what they need for themselves or their family members and just keep the heck out of it the rest right. of the time because it's just so complicated and so very susceptible to fear mongering and scare tales and things like that to try to get people to freak out and back off and oppose things because they fear what they might lose and they don't trust anybody in terms of promising them something better. And that's really core and key, I think. Thank you so much for joining okay. us today. Yes, All right. Thank you for joining us today with Professor John McDonough. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or past episodes, please be sure to check out our website. The URL is in the podcast description. And don't forget, Jake and I will be interviewing more guests to continue learning about what Medicare for All is and isn't. In future episodes, we'll be joined by Professor William C. Shaw, a Harvard economist who has designed single-payer systems with about 10 governments around the world, as well as Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan. We'll also be joined by Stephanie King, a doctorate student at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, who most recently worked in D.C. as a Medicare for All fellow with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.